A couple of weeks ago, Brent and I had the chance to go out to Scottsdale, Arizona, and visit our son and our daughter-in-law. But while we were there, the greatest privilege was hanging out with this guy. This is our newest grandson, Arvin, and we got to spend a whole lot of time, just the two of us and him. And I couldn't help as I pushed the stroller through Old Town Scottsdale, as we would pass daily by homeless people who were asleep still on the concrete benches and buggies full of everything that they own. We would walk past places where people weren't living a lifestyle that was consistent with the Word of God. And daily I heard sirens going off all around me. And I couldn't help but to think, man, Arvin and my other three grandchildren are going to grow up or are growing up in a world that you and I never dreamed of. It's scary to think of what they will face in their early years, let alone later in life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And man, hanging out with him, that was life in abundance. But there is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a part of the reality that we live in. We numb ourselves to it because sometimes we get so busy with our work and with life or our favorite TV series or our favorite sports team or hobbies that we forget that there's a battle going on out there. There's a war going on. Within this series, we're going to talk about that war, but to be clear, we're going to talk about the victory we have in Jesus. We're going to talk about the spiritual warfare that's there, the enemies that's, that's out there, but we're not going to talk about it from the side of fear, but we're going to talk about it from the side of faith. Because we understand, as we celebrated last week, Jesus has already declared victory, right? Jesus has already declared victory. Do you remember what happened on June 6, 1944? It was known as D-Day. The Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. Now, what you may not remember from history class is that it took a while for the United States to engage in World War II. We had a spirit of just maintaining safety, or it was known as a neutral position. We didn't want to get involved because it was over there. It was in Europe. It was over there. It wasn't us. And whenever you're struggling to get involved in something that's risky, there's a sense in which complacency takes over. And that was our position. That's not our problem. Those aren't our people. Let someone else take care of that. And for a few years, that was our approach as a country. But then it became clear that Hitler wasn't going to stop. Millions of Jews were being killed 
and the freedom of the entire world was at stake and hanging in the balance. So on D-Day, we joined with the Allied forces and over 150,000 troops, 150,000 troops in some 5,000 boats stormed the shores of Normandy. The boats were called Higgins boats. They were kind of utility boats. They weren't very big, but they could fit an awful lot of soldiers in those boats. And when they got close to the beach, the heavy iron gate would lower and all the soldiers would empty out. And when that happened, gunfire began to rain down. Hitler knew that the Allied forces would probably attack somewhere along the French coast. And so he established strongholds where there were miles and miles of bunkers that they had dug out with some four million landmines that had been set in preparation for the troops' arrival. And the sacrifices that day were enormous. Some 10,000 lives were sacrificed as a result of the battle that day. But here's the thing. There is no way to defeat evil without engagement. There is no way to defeat evil if you remain neutral. You can't win. When there is no pain, there is no victory. When there is no sacrifice, there is no victory. And the lie that we sometimes hear and even buy into and believe, uh, someone else can do it. I'll be much happier if I go to the side of complacency and comfort and don't involve myself in a cause that's higher than myself. I'll just lay back. And in the next few weeks, we want to talk about the opposite of complacency as God's church. We want to talk about getting engaged in the war and the battle that's going on. The name of the series is Unstoppable. Say it with me. Unstoppable. It specifically speaks of the mission of God's church. The purpose that God wants to accomplish in this world through you, through me. And nothing can stop it. But sometimes we don't have that mentality. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by the obstacles and the difficulty we face. That's not the tone of the New Testament. The tone of the New Testament is hope, determination. Nothing can stop the purposes of God in this world. No matter what happens, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what landmines we come across in this life, God can't be stopped. God can't be controlled. God can't be contained. Romans 16, 20, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We used to sing a song at camp of that, and it was a crazy, oh, kids go like this. It'll crush Satan underneath your feet. Victory is inevitable for us. Knowing that, it should change our attitude. It should change the way we live. It should change how we get out of bed every morning and face life with hope and with faith instead of fear. Because sin and darkness can't stop the church. Jesus took care of that on the cross, right? 
The government, no government can stop it. Persecution can't stop it. Prejudice can't stop it. Poverty can't stop it. Debt can't stop it. Jesus said in Revelation, I've got the keys. The keys to death, and I wear them on my hip. I've got the keys to the gates of hell, and there's nothing that can stop the church. If you have your Bible, a Bible app for your phone or iPad, you can look at, at it later. Matthew chapter 16 is where I'm going to be referring to through this message. Jesus is going to have a conversation with his disciples. But what I want to catch before we get into that is how important Jesus' message is going to be, but also understand that geography matters in this story. They go to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It's about a 25-mile hike. Remember, no cars back then. They walked. Jesus says, guys, let's go on a hike. 25-mile hike. Would have been a 24-hour journey. Why? Why make a 24-hour journey just to have a conversation with Jesus? Why go to a place, Caesarea Philippi, a place that was avoided by most God-fearing people? It was a place of darkness, place of pagan worship, where they would participate in some unspeakable hedonistic practices. But this is where Jesus takes his followers. And while they're there, they have a conversation. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples kind of stumble around for an answer. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, but we've seen you with John the Baptist, so we know you're not John the Baptist. But that's what some people say, Jesus Others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. People know there's something different about you, but they just don't know what to do with you, Jesus. And here's what Jesus does next. Jesus does what Jesus does. He gets personal. He gets right up into their face. And he looks at the disciples, and in verse 15, he says, okay, what about you? That's what everybody else says. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? I know what all your friends think. I know what your family feels. I know what's you know, trending out there on social media, guys. What do you think about me? And when Jesus does that, even today there's a whole lot of people that don't like it, right? Don't like it when Jesus gets personal. There are a whole lot of people who come to church and they're just looking for informational download. Just give me some information so I can go through my week. Or they come to church, just give me some practical application, something to ha help my anxiety or improve my marriage. Or maybe... You fall in the case of being more traditional. You come to church to check the box so you feel like, okay, I, I, I did that this week. Nobody likes to be asked, who's Jesus to you? Who is he really? But the longer you attend worship, and I pray the longer you attend worship here, 
I pray that you will come face to face with the Holy Spirit in a personal discussion where you are forced to answer the question, who is Jesus to me? Who is he really? And so Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? I don't know, maybe there's some awkward silence. Maybe they're looking down at the dirt, kicking the dirt, and they're thinking, you know, Peter, you always speak up. Peter, say something. Finally, Peter speaks up in verse 16, and he says those famous words, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the son of God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That was not revealed to you by man. You didn't figure that out on your own, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail or overcome it. Prevail against it or overcome it. And so here they are in Caesarea Philippi, remember. And this is where Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, here's why why geography matters. Track with me. Jesus is revealing himself through Simon's confession. And he's speaking of his plan for the church. Notice he's not doing it in some fancy temple. He's not doing it at the Sea of Galilee where it would be nice and cool and comfortable. But he's giving this message in a place of total darkness a place that's broken, shameful, a place that worship is, worships false gods. And he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Carved into the mountain of Caesarea Philippi were these temples dedicated to pagan worship. One of those temples was a cave, and it was known as the gates of hell. Within that cave was a spring, a bubbling spring. It was so deep because of the methods they had back then, they couldn't reach the bottom of the cave, estimated to be some 800 feet deep. And so it was called the gates of hell. It was somehow understood to be a gate to the underworld where demons and devils would go in and come out, go in and come out. It was here in Caesarea Philippi where they engaged in worshiping false gods, horrible acts including prostitution, bestiality. It was a place of total darkness. And this is where Jesus says, guys, let's go for a hike. Where are we going? Caesarea Philippi. They knew what was there. Okay, Jesus, we'll go, but don't you tell my mom I went there. That's how horrible this place was. And Jesus says, while we're here, listen, this is where I'm going to build my church. The church is going to prevail. The church doesn't avoid the gates of hell. The church storms the gates of hell. Geography matters. Jesus was so creative, so creative. And we listen to that story. We listen to that message about the behavior of the people in Caesarea Philippi. 
And if you're like me, sometimes I think, well, that was back then. It's outdated. We've evolved a whole lot in comparison to what they were. We don't have temples like that or false gods like that. Really? I'm convinced we have the same false gods. The temples just look a little bit different these days. What is a porn site except for a pagan temple? What's the hookup app except for a pagan temple? Or the office where we may spend 70 hours a week and neglect our marriage, our kids, our family, all on the altar of success and power. Or maybe the university where it seems that people now worship secular humanism more than an almighty God. Temple, you bet. The temples are different, but we still worship false gods. Jesus brings his disciples to this place. It's not comfortable. It's not safe. It's not easy. In fact, it is a broken place, a shameful place. And he looks around and he says, yeah, this is a pretty good spot. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And get this, the church is never to be on defense. The church is to be on offense. And there's a big difference. Let me explain it to you as I wrap this up. When the church is on defense, we focus on stopping something. When the church is on offense, we always focus on starting something. Big, big difference. Maybe you grew up in a church where it was all about what was not okay with life. I did. I did. It was all about what you were against, not what you were for. You didn't really understand the gospel, but you knew you weren't supposed to dance. The square dance was okay, but don't get too close and don't go too fast, right? You really didn't understand the gospel, but you knew you weren't supposed to play cards, right? I remember the church that I grew up in, we would go on uh, trips as a youth group. They would check our bags to make sure the cards weren't in there. It's about what we're against. Oh, and you know, you might not really understand the gospel, but you knew you were supposed to be against rock and roll music, especially if they played it backwards. Remember? Another one bites the dust. You play it backwards, but you play it slow enough, it sounds like, Start smoking marijuana. Did it really sound like that? Tattoos? No way. Unless maybe it was a scripture verse. The point is, as a church back then, and when I was raised, we knew what we were against, but I never was really taught what we were for. 
I was never taught about a church that is on the offense, but always about a church on the defense. And when that happens, you miss the whole point of the church and you miss the power of God's church. Because the power comes in what we're for, not what we're against. It is an incredible, exciting time to be the church. But when you're on defense, all you think about is all how bad the world is, how bad the news is, how bad people are. It's always going on the negative side, pessimism, despair. But when you look at the church from the offensive side, this is one of the greatest times in the history of the world to be God's church. And at Northside, I'm thrilled that we've gone on the offense. We went on the offense when the pandemic hit and we established our worship service online live. Today, 11 o'clock, it'll be on there live. This message that I'm speaking this morning, Northside of Medina, you can go on the website, you can find it, you can listen to it. There will be thousands of people that aren't here or in Wadsworth, in our area and across the world who watch and worship with us today or in the coming weeks online. We've gone on the offense establishing Northside Medina. And many of you, and if you're here this morning, you're a part of that. You're on the offense. Give yourself a hand. Go ahead. You're on the offense to go out and take a risk financially to make this happen. Today, we relaunched our next gen for our two-year-olds through fourth grade. People stepped up. They got on the offense. They can't hear you, but give them a hand. They're back in the back, all right? Every week, we need greeters still. We need people who help set up. We need people who help tear down. There are all kinds of ways to get involved here at Northside Medina. The pandemic threatened to slow us down. Joe told me he had a conversation a week or so ago with somebody at the store and said, oh, we're sorry you had to shut down Northside Medina. Joe said, oh, no, we're not shut down. And they were here last week. God is in control. And we will continue as his church to storm the gates of hell, even in Medina, Ohio. We go on the offense again next week with Compassion 2021, where we'll go out into the area in communities and we will serve and we'll love on people with the grace and love of Jesus Christ. You can be a part of that. Just go on Compassion uh, Northside web.org slash compassion. There are cards as you exit this morning you can grab a hold of. Here in Medina, I encourage you to be a part of Oasis for Hope or the Cups Cafe. They're within walking distance from us right here. We're going to be serving there next week. Get on the offense. Get involved. There's a school of thought that says you get a lot more people to come to church if it's comfortable. If it's entertaining, if you don't challenge them, if you don't get too personal, you get a whole lot more people coming to church. 
but that's not the church God's called us to be. Or like if you want people to come, be a cruise ship, right? Be a cruise ship. It's all comfortable. It's entertaining. Everybody wants to be a part of a cruise ship. You don't storm the gates of hell with a cruise ship. What's it called? You store the gates of hell with a Higgins boat. I've given you simple little toy boats today. Kind of cheesy. But I want you to put them in your pocket, put them in your purse, maybe tape it to your dashboard of your car, and remind yourself this week and pray that you will be a part of the church that isn't on defense, but you will be a part of a church that is on offense, continuing to storm against the gates of hell with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. I hope you want to be a part of that. I hope you'll reject complacency and comfort. I hope you'll embrace the challenge of commitment and sacrifice required to be that kind of church. Galatians 6, 9. Do not become weary in doing good. For at a proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Stand and read that with me, please. Do not become. One more time. Do not become weary. Say this with me. The church is unstoppable. Say that. Okay, now say it like you're on offense. All right, here we go. One more time. Loud. The church is unstoppable. All right. <laughs>